This is Radio Free Bay Ridge. I'm Dan, and today we're bringing you a special episode from Poly Prep Country Day School, our neighbors on 92nd Street since 1916. Poly, which you may know from their gorgeous duck pond, is opening its gates to the neighborhood in this free public lecture series, of which we were honored to be part of. This inaugural lecture of Context, Conversations at Poly Prep, features Jeremy Surrey, noted historian and author, discussing his book The Impossible Presidency and analyzing the evolution of the office of the president over time. If you like the lecture, remember to check in at Polly's website for more events coming up, and we'll be sure to keep you informed if you subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can follow us on Twitter at at RadioFreeBR. So now, let's jump right into the lecture at Polly Prep's gorgeous library. Ladies and gentlemen, it's so wonderful to see you all. Thank you so much for coming. Welcome to this inaugural talk of Context, Conversations at Poly Prep. It's such a, such a pleasure to welcome my students, our faculty, our Brooklyn neighbors to this new series, our parents. The new series, you should know, was born last year out of a desire to foster conversations conversations about important issues that link past and present. As we teach our students, history is alive. In its narrative form, it is much more a reflection of who we are than a dispassionate recitation of events, dates, or personalities. We make history no less than it has made us. We come together tonight to discuss and debate its meaning, its significance, what it can teach us or not, about our current challenges and opportunities. Before I introduce our distinguished guest, Professor Jeremy Sori, I want to take a moment to thank a number of individuals who have made this teacher's dream of talking about history late into the evening with her <laughs> students a reality. First, my deep thanks to Polly Prep's head of school, Odris Barzdukas, who has encouraged who has encouraged this and other forms of learned conversations since his arrival at Poly Prep two years ago. If Odrius gave the green light, the all-important green light for this series, it was Jennifer Slomack, Laura Grimm, and the fabulous communications staff at Poly, William, Jordana, Linda, who built the highway. It has been a delight and a wonderful learning experience to work with all of you on communication in its broadest and most important sense of the term. I also want to thank our local Bay Ridge community partners who are here tonight supporting Context. We're so happy to launch this speaker series with you. We have Erin Ruggeri from the Bookmark Shop, located at 84th and 3rd, there's the plug, who has copies of Professor Suri's book for you to purchase. Please do one more, as many as you like. After the talk, please shop local, pick up a copy if you haven't already, and Professor Suri will happily sign one for you. We also welcome Rachel Lynn Brody and Dan and Mary Hedix, the creators of Radio Free Bay Ridge. Radio Free Bay Ridge is a hyper-local political podcast that launched in October 2017. They are recording this event and featuring this discussion in an upcoming special episode of the podcast. We will share a link to the podcast when it becomes available. Finally, my heartfelt thanks to the history department, whose vitality and intelligent engagement with history and the world 
animates everything we do here on a daily basis. And from the bottom of my heart to my students, who are the inspiration for everything we do. Tonight, the AP government students are the moderators. You have read Professor Suri's book with your typical curiosity and insight. And as always, <laughs> as always, you've made me proud to be your teacher. If you are the future, I, for one, rest assured that we are in better hands than we have been in the past. And now, sir, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Professor Jeremy Suri, Professor of History and Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. So, Jeremy, you've been in Brooklyn for two hours. Want to come back? Absolutely. <laughs> we fed him very well. <laughs> Jeremy is a graduate of Stuyvesant High School. We have some students from Stuyvesant in the audience tonight. And earned his undergraduate degree at Stanford, an MA in history at Ohio University, and a PhD at Yale. It's too bad you're not well-educated, my friend. <laughs> um, which Yale, by the way, awarded him the prize for best dissertation in the humanities in 2001. A celebrated teacher and writer, and I speak from experience, because for one precious week, several years ago, he was my teacher at the University of Texas at Austin at a summer professional development program. He is the author and editor of nine books on contemporary politics and foreign policy, including Liberty's Surest Guardian, American Nation Building from the Founders to Obama, and Henry Kissinger and the American Century. Professor Suri writes for major newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, some of those local Texas papers we've heard about, <laughs> um, Foreign Affairs, The Atlantic, Fortune, and Wired, among others. He is a popular public lecturer, as you'll see in a moment, uh, the reason for that being uh, his wonderful ability to really capture the moment and teach us all and appears frequently on radio and television programs. You were drawn to the University of Texas at Austin, and at Austin and at LBJ School of Public Affairs, according to a recent interview I read, by, a cutting by its cutting-edge interdisciplinary, international, and global work. You once described yourself, I love this, as an historian who uses historical analysis to try to help improve contemporary policymaking. Is there anything more worthwhile? Tonight, you've offered to share your work with us. We could not be more grateful. Welcome. Oh, thank you. You're so kind. Thank you. Uh, that was a tremendous uh, introduction. I'm almost afraid to say anything and disappoint you uh, after that. I, I am so excited to be here. Um, I've been speaking about this book in many places, but I think this is the most uh, extraordinary audience to speak to. A group of students and community parents and activists and teachers, people who are training our next generation of leaders. There could be nothing more important than that. And I so fondly remember meeting Mikhail uh, when we ran this uh, one week long teacher workshop that I did for a number of years. And then I haven't done it for a few years. I need to do it again now. This is reminding me. Uh, we began the workshop with the teachers coming to our home and my children uh, interrogating the teachers <laughs> and my wife wondering when this was going to end. Uh, and I remember Mikhail for her enthusiasm and her idealism at that time, and she's never lost that. We all need to remember our idealism these days. 
We live in a world that needs our idealism more than ever before. I wrote this book, and in many ways I became a historian because uh, one of the most important lessons we can learn is the lesson of change. You see, there's a difference between being a historian and being an antiquarian. They're two different things, and we tend to get them uh, mixed up, in part because many people didn't have the great history teachers you have here at uh, Poly Prep. I went to Stuyvesant, and we had nothing like what you have. I'm wondering why I didn't know about this school uh, at that point. I know Stuyvesant now is uh, I'm covering all my bases here. Antiquarianism is the desire to live in the past, to bring back that moment that has been lost, that desk that Abraham Lincoln sat at, that mem piece of memorabilia from great grandma. We all have that desire, but antiquarianism is the attempt to find something that's lost. That's not what we do as historians. We don't live in the past. Historical thinking, and every great leader I've studied and met is a historical thinker. Historical thinking is about using the knowledge of the past to better understand the present and foresee some of the future. What does that mean in reality? It means not playing Monday morning quarterback, not pretending we know better because we don't necessarily know better. It means looking back at the decisions others made, decisions others made generally for good reason understanding why they made the decisions they made, and revisiting those decisions for our lives today. You see, we are stuck in the past if we presume the past was inevitable, and we have no future if we don't understand the choices of the past, which become choices for our present and our future as well. And that's really what this book is about. The presidency is the most talked about institution in the world, I believe. It is the model of executive leadership. I show this early in the book. The term executive actually comes into use because of George Washington. Uh, it is the birthplace of our notion, our modern notion of executive leadership, but yet it is one of the least historically analyzed offices. We spend our time pretending that there were these great men in the past, and if we could just bring them back, our world would be better. And that's not the way to think about it. Studying history is not studying men of marble. Studying history is understanding the choices, the dilemmas, the difficulties they faced, how they adjusted, and how we can learn to adjust in our own time. The argument of my book, fundamentally, is that the presidency was not made by the ink on the parchment of the constitutional documents. The presidency was made in the doing. And generation after generation, different Americans in that office and the citizens around them have reinvented that office. It has not happened with every president. It has happened over 60 to 70 year cycles in most cases. And the remaking of that office for 150 years made our society so much broader, so much stronger, so much more powerful, and in many ways more democratic, much more democratic than we were at the founding. But over the last 60 years or so, in fact, because of the great successes of the office by the mid-20th century, we have remained stuck, stuck in an old model, stuck in a model of leadership that reflects a different time, so stuck in it that we talk about making ourselves great by going back 
to that time. That sounds historical, it's antiquarian. To understand leadership is to understand the change we need in our institutions today. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit about that. I know many of you have read and dissected my book. There's nothing more interesting than having uh, really super smart AP students pull apart <laughs> a book. You're, you're not in college yet, so you don't have to kiss up to me to get grades. You can actually show off what you know, so this will be a very interesting discussion, I'm sure. But let me just sketch out for those of you who haven't had a chance to read the book and have been, have been liberated from it. Uh, <laughs> let me give you a sense of how I make this argument and why it's relevant for today. Because as Mikhail said, I'm a deep believer in studying history seriously, but I'm also a deep believer that we study history for the present. We don't study it to live in the past. The office of the presidency was created by George Washington because the founders themselves did not know what they were doing. So one thing you've learned already tonight is the next time someone tells you they know the original intent of the founders for the presidency, they're lying to you, or they're dumb, <laughs> or both. There was no original intent. They didn't know what they were getting, and in fact, everything they anticipated did not happen. They assumed Congress would choose the president, that no one would ever get a majority of electoral votes because every big state would nominate their favorite sons, as they were called, and Congress would choose, as happened in, when did it happen? 1824, right? among three times that it happened, right? It's the most famous one, right? Everyone knew that in the audience, right? All of your students knew that, right? The corrupt bargain, John Quincy Adams, Henry Clay, everyone knows what I'm talking about, right? So what you're gonna learn in college is shake your head yes, as if you understand, yes, <laughs> professor, right? Uh, they didn't know. All they knew was that they had the right man for the first president in George Washington. It's like hiring a teacher. You can write the job description. It can go on page after page. You know you have the right teacher when that person walks in the room. And you as a student know you have the right teacher when they teach. In fact, you know in the first five minutes, right? You pretty much know uh, pretty quickly. They knew in George Washington they had the right person because the office had one function and one function alone in its early iteration to bring the country together. People from New York and people from Georgia couldn't understand each other and didn't think of themselves as Americans. And the founders wanted a unitary figure, not just a parliament. They wanted someone who would bring Americans together. That was George Washington's role. He played that role brilliantly. He did it as a man, and remember these two words, of virtue and a man of consensus. Virtue and consensus, two words we have stopped using. Two words we should start using again. He led people by coming out of the people and raising them up to what Lincoln would later call the better angels in their nature. And if you ever see the wonderful Gilbert Stuart portraits of Washington, you see that. He's not a king, but he's not an ordinary person either. He's someone who came from the ordinary people and rose up by merit. By the way, there was one thing and one thing above all that the founders were opposed to. And if you asked them what democracy was, they'd say this. The opposition to nepotism. Thomas Paine put this best in common sense. He said, the son of a baker was no more likely to be a fool than the son of a king. And in fact, the son of the baker was more likely the genius. And he's right. Most of us are the sons of bakers and daughters of bakers in this room, right? Not the sons and daughters of kings. That's what makes your school great. Washington was the executive to unify. And the word executive is actually means unity uh, in its usage during the early 19th century, the executives of the railroads were not supposed to be the smartest people in running the railroads. They were supposed to, people, supposed to be the people who brought the stockholders and the railroad employees together to cooperate 
Those are the big corporations of the mid-19th century. The second phase of the presidency, when the presidency gets reinvented, is not in the Constitution. It's in the doing, and then the Constitution is rewritten. Is this man Abraham Lincoln you might have heard of. Abraham Lincoln changes the presidency not just by fighting a civil war, but by turning this office of unity into an office of opportunity for poor white men like himself, as well as slaves and others. But his primary concern is poor white men. That's what the Republican Party is all about. He is the first Republican president. The Republican Party is about free labor, free soil, free men. Eric Foner has written very well uh, about this. You should have Eric come up here, actually, and then tell him he was second best to me. I always like Eric to know that. Um, Lincoln is a poor white man born in a border state. Why would anyone pay him to do anything if they could get a slave to do it for free? For him, slavery is the greatest threat to opportunity for hard-working young people. And he views the presidency as not simply a unifying office, but now an office that has to pursue what he sees as an economic development plan for the country. Lincoln is the first CEO president. In fact, his job before he was president, everyone in this room knows, was lawyer. Most people don't know what he was a lawyer for. He was actually a lawyer to the largest corporations in the country. He was a corporate lawyer for the railroads. In fact, he tried more cases for the railroads in Illinois Supreme Court and appellate courts than any other lawyer of his generation. He was the hired gun of big business. But Lincoln saw in big business the opportunity of a world of capitalism for those who were locked out by slavery. Lincoln uses the presidency to do three things. I'll go through them very quickly. In addition to winning the Civil War, Homestead Act, 1862. I mean, all the students know this already, right? Homestead Act, 1862, provides land access, land ownership for free for families that are willing to work the land. Families like Lincoln's own. By the way, tell everyone you know, under the Homestead Act, you did not have to be a citizen to get land. Tens of thousands of Irish, Italian, German, and Mexican immigrants are given land in the Dakotas, Kansas, Oklahoma. The only obligation meaning to live on the land and work the land did not have to be a citizen. The Chinese are excluded, by the way. It's interesting. The Chinese are excluded and the Japanese to some extent. So that's important to make that point. But others, religious and racial backgrounds, are allowed to own land. In some areas, even African-Americans own. You have more African-American landowners in the West than you do on the eastern seaboard by the 1880s, in fact. Second, moral land grants, 1862, provides land for public universities. The United States is the first country to create universities accessible to farmers, and the moral land grant legislation written by Lincoln himself says that these universities should provide ordinary people with access to the advanced agricultural sciences, and here's the best part, the liberal arts. The word is in there. Lincoln wanted poor farmers to know how to be better farmers and to read Shakespeare. That was his dream. Third thing, Lincoln subsidizes the building of the railroads. After Lincoln's presidency, because of his use of presidential power, we have the single largest integrated market economy in the world. And by the way, we still do. I call it the Lincoln economy. Created by the Transcontinental Railroad, created by our public university system, and created by land ownership. From 1867 to 1967, we have more land ownership than any other society, higher rates of education, and we have more economic growth than any other society. That's the whole ball of wax right there. None of that's in the Constitution. 
None of that's in the Constitution. Lincoln reinvents the president as not just a unifying father figure, but as an opportunity creator. We might call him a CEO. We might call him a CEO. And by the way, people start thinking of the executive as Lincoln. Some of the first business books written in the 1870s and 80s are written by people who worked for Lincoln. John Hay, Nicolay, and others. The third moment for the presidency, the third reinvention of the presidency that we still live with is Franklin Roosevelt. I talk about Andrew Jackson and Theodore Roosevelt, but the real third moment is with Franklin Roosevelt. And uh, Sal asked me before, where's Sal? Is Sal here? Oh, Sal's not here, he's in trouble. If Sal, were, if Sal were here, Sal would be happy I'm calling out his question. <laughs> Sal, asked me, Sal asked me how polio affected Roosevelt. It affected him deeply. Franklin Roosevelt was born, he was a Roosevelt. He was born of the most elite families. So a Ro Franklin Roosevelt was like being born as, I don't know what the equivalent today would be, like a Kardashian. I, that's not, that's <laughs> terrible. Imagine Roosevelt's a Kardashian. I mean, it's, this is how our society has fallen. How far we have gone, right? Like a Kennedy, right? Like a Kennedy. Roosevelt was born with every privilege. In fact, he was privileged beyond privilege. He had a mother who was 20 years younger than his father. So his mother had all the money in the world, and his father uh, was not really her companion, so Franklin was her companion. He had a doting mother. He had one important woman in his life, his mother, not his wife. Uh, he was the last president to collect an allowance from his mom while he was in office, by the way. That's how he had all the fancy cigarette holders. Roosevelt, however, in spite of all the privilege, privilege none of us in this room could imagine, uh, Roosevelt suffered one of the most horrible diseases of his time. And he spent four years of his life, between his time running for vice president and running for governor of New York, living in Warm Springs, Georgia, not with his wife, living with some of the most destitute, suffering people in our society, people he never would have spent time with, and he lived with them. Quite frankly, as disadvantaged as my family was and many of your families are, people far more disadvantaged, people who had grown up starving, people who had grown up without a roof over their head, he spent four years of his life living with them, and he learned the most important lesson that all of us need to remember, that any historian can tell us, which is that we all quickly forget that we're here because of skill and because of luck. Or another way of saying that, every one of us in this room, with a few other turns in our lives, even our young lives, even my young life, a few other turns in our lives, we could be somewhere else and someone else could be sitting here. There are 10 people as talented as each of us who didn't get to sit here, right? I know that when I took the test to go to Stuyvesant. I know, I know that when I got into Stanford. No, I, plenty of other people who didn't get those opportunities, didn't get lucky, right? Maybe one question I guessed on, someone else didn't even have the chance to take the test to do that. He understood that, and he turned the presidency from being simply a father figure and an opportunity creator into also being a healer, providing an opportunity, a chance for those who had been left behind, coming into people's homes through the radio. And I describe a lot of this in the book, using the federal government not to create efficient institutions. I, I actually don't think efficiency is the way we should judge things. If we did, we wouldn't have parenting because it's deeply inefficient. <laughs> I know that as I spend things, spend money on one thing after another. It's deeply inefficient, right? Love comes first, right? Helping people comes ahead of efficiency. That's what he did. That's what he did. Saul Bellow, I quote Saul Bellow. How many people have read Saul Bellow's novels? 
No one's read Saul Bellow's novels. You all should read Saul Bellow. We'll get you. I thought this was a good school. What kind of school? What kind of school did you bring me to, Michal? <laughs> Saul Bellow is a great novelist, great American novelist, Nobel Prize winner in literature. Saul Bellow, like myself, uh, has a Russian Jewish immigrant background. I'm, my father's from India, my mother's from Russia. Uh, so Saul Bellow is like my mother's side of the family. Came to Chicago, uh, grew up in Chicago, I had to leave college because of the Depression, and said growing up in Chicago as a young Jew, he hated all politicians. He hated them all. They were on the make. They were corrupt. Does this sound familiar? He said Franklin Roosevelt was the first politician who ever spoke to him. And Franklin Roosevelt had such a different life. What was it? Roosevelt, he said, tried to understand me. He didn't try to tell me what to do. He tried to understand my pain. He empathized. Listen to his radio chats, his fireside chats, uh, not now, later on Google. <laughs> And you'll hear this. He doesn't offer easy solutions, but he explains people's pain. The most powerful thing in the world is to tell someone and show someone you understand their pain. And he used the radio to reach people. He didn't dictate, he explained. And then he asked people to join him and he empowered them to help themselves. Ronald Reagan's father, Jack Reagan, lost his job as a shoe salesman and was hired by the Works Progress Administration as a community organizer. Ronald Reagan's father and Barack Obama had the same job. Ronald Reagan's father, in Ronald Reagan's words, was saved by Franklin Roosevelt, who gave him a chance, who gave him a chance. The problem since Roosevelt, the second half of my book, is not that we have lacked talented people. I'm a historian. I can only comment as a historian on the presidents who are no longer in office. So of those I can study historically, the ones after World War II have been no less talented than the ones before. If you think of the talents of a Dwight Eisenhower, the last man since William the Conqueror to successfully cross the English Channel in war, that's a pretty good title, right? Shows you man's got some talent, right? Uh, Lyndon Johnson, who passes the most important civil rights legislation since the Civil War. I mean, you know, these are some people with some skills, right? It's not that we have lacked uh, people of talent is that we have failed to reinvent the office. You see, Roosevelt takes on all of these new responsibilities, but it's still a relatively small office. But he finds himself, just before his death now, as president of the world, as president of the world. And not just that, a much more diverse population at home with much more diverse needs. He was negotiating with A. Philip Randolph, and he thought that was diversity. <laughs> in 1941. Diversity is much more than negotiating with a few leaders from few, a few ethnic groups. And it's much more than negotiating with a few foreign leaders, a Stalin and a Churchill. Just think about it this way. For Roosevelt, there are really six or seven foreign leaders who matter. And if you read about World War II, there's six or seven who matter to him. For John F. Kennedy, just 20 years later, there are about 140 that matter because we're seeking to prevent the spread of communism in Africa, in Latin America, in Southeast Asia, in places Americans couldn't even identify in 1941. The responsibilities and expectations that Roosevelt takes on become more than anyone in the office can handle. And here's the dirty secret. By the 1960s, and I show this with Kennedy and Johnson, two men I deeply respect, uh, and I show this with Reagan, another man I deeply respect, and certainly with Obama and Clinton, two of the most talented people I think we have seen in our history. I think Bill Clinton might be the smartest person ever to be president. 
I think Bill Clinton is smarter than many of us combined. If you've ever had the chance to talk to this man, you will realize this. He can do what each of us can do four times over. Uh, and that's his problem too, by the way. <laughs> but what we find is they are taking more and more on, and as they take more and more on, they become more reactive and less strategic. Here is the insight. After World War II, the United States is the most powerful nation in the world, but our leaders spend less time thinking about how they ought to use this power and more time reacting to crises that occur in the manifestation of that power. It is all crisis management. And from the 1970s forward, that's definitely true. My friends who have served in government, I have a few who are in the NSC right now, I ask them, this is my common question, I could ask your head of school this, when was the last day you didn't have a crisis, right? Right, that's the problem. That's the problem. Crisis management is not leadership. Crisis, as our world has become more complex, as we've taken on more responsibilities, as schools, taken on more responsibilities, as institutions, we've taken on more than we can handle in the existing model. And it's not that these are responsibilities we should get rid of. It's not that that's the problem. It's that we haven't reinvented the office. We haven't reinvented leadership. We are trying to put 21st century problems into a mid-20th century vessel. The business world has moved, and the problems of the business world, I'm not being idealistic here about the business world, the business world has moved beyond. The CEOs today don't operate the way CEOs did even 10, 20 years ago. But yet we think of the presidency in the same way. And so we start to get figures who are talented, but like Clinton and Obama, don't lead, but react. But react. How do you become president and stay president now? Everyone gets something. Shaka wants something, I give it to him. Mikhail wants something, I give it to him. I give everyone a little bit. I don't lead. I don't bring things together. And that requires not just new people. It requires a new way of thinking about the institution, a new way of defining leadership in a larger, global, more complex world with more expectations. Another way of saying what I'm saying is if Abraham Lincoln or Franklin Roosevelt walked in the door today, they would not solve our problems. We need a new kind of leader and a new kind of institution. And the new institution will be built by new kinds of leaders in it who are willing not simply to play the game as it is, but to change it from within. That is my deep frustration with men I deeply respect, like Clinton and Obama. They were better at playing the game than changing the game. They had a lot of obstacles, don't get me wrong. But they were better at playing the game than changing the game. Great leaders achieve success by what Rudy Duchka, the great 1960s activist who I wrote about in an earlier book called The Long March Through the Institutions. That's what you've started in high school, getting up at 5 a.m. to get here and working till 2 a.m. on your homework. I remember that. You're marching through the institutions, but as you march through the institutions, you have to attain leadership positions and change those institutions, not assume you can change things yourself. And that's the moment we're in now. I think people voted the way they voted on all sides. I'm talking about Sanders voters, like my seventh grade son, all of a sudden one day, you know, a box arrives at our home with Bernie Sanders t-shirts, <laughs> right? He spent his allowance to buy us Bernie Sanders t-shirts, right? Uh, Sanders voters, Trump voters, Clinton voters perhaps, there was a sense the system wasn't working and we had to find someone to fix it, some old guy, some old guy. That's not the way it works. That's why it's gotten worse. That's why it's gotten worse. And don't get me wrong, it wouldn't be as bad, I think, if Sanders were there now, but it would still be bad. 
It's not going to be solved by one person. It's going to be solved by a group of young people, like a young Lincoln, like a young Roosevelt, who get into office and reinvent, change the institutions in the ways those men change the institutions for another time, for the needs of our time, for the purposes of our period. If we care about the environment, we need an institution that actually takes the environment seriously. The presidency is built not to do that. It responds to industry, it responds to Congress, it does not respond to oxygen. There are many ways the offices that we consider our leadership offices have to be remade. And that will happen, I believe, when young people get into those offices. So the real historical plea I'm making is for us to be institutionally creative, to look back and not try to be Lincoln, but be inspired by his institutional creativity, to have institutional creativity in our own time. If your generation succeeds, the presidency will look very different. Maybe there'll be a prime minister as well, as I argue. Head of school will look different. Professor will look different. All these institutions will be rebuilt, redesigned in their responsibility, redesigned in their authority, redesigned in the way they practice what they do. And I am confident that's going to happen. In fact, I think this moment is making it clear, clearer than ever before that that's necessary. So we could talk a lot more about this, but I want to close by saying I'm confident because of all of you, Holly Prep and Stuyvesant and McCallum High School where my daughter grows, I need to include that as well, right? <laughs> that all of you are going to go in and make a difference. If you remember nothing else, please remember this. Your generational challenge and opportunity is to go into public service and change these institutions. Prior generations stood up against bullets to do this. This is now your opportunity and your challenge, and you all have been equipped already by being here to undertake this. I'm confident when I come back in a few years that we'll be able to talk about a polygrad who's president or secretary of state or something like that, governor, mayor, and that uh, she will be doing an incredibly new job. I love being right. I was right, right? Um, so, Dr. Dillon of our department came up with this fabulous idea. Why? Oh, Sal, you decided to join us. There he is. Oh, there he is, yeah. I referred to your question, Sal. <laughs> I had already answered it. He didn't have to come to the lecture. He'd already heard. Dr. Dillon um, has suggested, and I borrowed, stole the suggestion, that of the 20-some-odd questions that the students wrote, Professor Suri gets to choose randomly. So please, if you would, just pick one out. Is that a sombrero? What is that? It's actually got a polyprep insignia. Yes? But who would ever wear that in New York well, City? Well, I was hoping you would. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, Who's the student who should stand up? Uh, Aiden. Aiden Malanafi. Where's Aiden? Yeah, we should clap. That's a good idea. <laughs> One of Obama's stated goals as candidate was that he wanted to model his cabinet off of Lincoln's and that he would have a team of rivals, yes. a group that would push him out of his comfort zone to consider new, different perspectives. To the extent that he tried to do so, did it hamper his effectiveness as a president? Great question. Um, it's wonderful that Obama recognized one of the biggest problems any leader has, any teacher has, which you quickly find yourself surrounded by sycophants, by people who tell you what you want to hear. 
right? If you have power over people, it could be grades, it could be money, people tell you what they want to hear, and they also want, to be, want you to invite them back. So Obama recognized this problem, and he did surround himself with people like Robert Gates and others who saw the world very differently. Uh, but what I like to do is go back to Machiavelli on this. And I actually said this in my one, my one meeting with Obama. Uh, the, um, Machiavelli says that the prince should not expect to get great advice from chosen advisors unless he knows the right questions to ask. Unless he knows the right questions to ask. And here was the problem on, let's say, Afghanistan, where that's one issue I've studied closely. So Obama brought around him people with very different views. Joe Biden had one view, right? Get out. Uh, members of the military had another view, get in deeper. And there were a wide variety of views. I think he was convinced to get out but he was afraid to really ask that question because of the political consequences of that. And he allowed himself to be, I think, and I bet he'll say this in his memoirs, to be cornered into making a decision he didn't want to make. And sometimes, especially early in your leadership, you have to make unpopular decisions that you know in the end, or you hope in the end, will turn out better for you and for those who will be voting for you down the line. So it's not who you have around you, it's the questions you ask of them. Of course. All right, this is from Sophie M. Oh. Of all the presidents that you chose to write about, is there one in particular that stands out to you as having had the most impact on the position? Thank you, Sophie. So I'm a big FDR guy, if you couldn't tell. Uh, I, I think uh, what Franklin Roosevelt did uh, was to change the very assumption of citizenship in our society, something we need to start doing again, right? We're, we're fighting over citizenship more. When we talk about immigration, what we talk about, we talk about citizenship. When we talk about race, we talk about citizenship. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, brought in the notion of citizenship uh, to be more inclusive. Still not completely inclusive, far from it, but to be much more inclusive and for the government to be playing a role, not giving people money for free, but providing opportunity for people to employ themselves and to put themselves at, into positions of being productive members of society. And then he fought a war to defend that proposition. And then he said that was an international proposition. Read the UN Charter, read the Atlantic Charter, right? They talk about a new deal for the world. So I'm a big Franklin Roosevelt guy, um, though I will say uh, in terms of personal taste, my favorite president is Abraham Lincoln. The man had two years of education, and he's probably one of the top five writers, politicians or not, in American history. He's up there with Mark Twain and Nathaniel Hawthorne. And if you can write like Lincoln, I promise you, you will go far. He finds the right words, if I might. Uh, I, I always love telling the story. It's in the book. He was asked once, how did you learn to use words the way you use them? And to use so few words to say so much. Right? Most of the time, we use lots of words to say very little. Think how short the Constitution is. Think how long most of our legislation is, right? And Lincoln said, when I was a little boy, I used to hear people talking, adults, and it would bother me that I couldn't understand what they were saying. So I would stay up at night in my little cabin, walking back and forth, trying to put their words into my words. And I would bound the words north, bound the words south, bound them east, bound them west, until I found the right words. Most of us don't take time to find the right words. The most important thing you can do, find the right words. And by the way, call out the bad words, too. 
Another one? Okay. Uh, let's see. Okay. Oh, well, this is the same student who asked before, so we'll go to a different one. Eva. Eva. Eva, I'm sorry. <laughs> Eva, I'm sorry. It happens all the time. Um, while you discredit presidential decisions throughout your books, uh, such as Jackson's anti-Indian policies and FDR's devastating compromises with Southerners during the New Deal, these men are still considered to have contributed to the rise of executive power and credibility. How much do we need to overlook in order to deem a president good or successful? That's a great question, Eva. That's a terrific question. This is the, this is the Jefferson and slave. This is the Jefferson and slaves question, right? <laughs> right? Should we throw Jefferson out because he had slaves, and we find that her and he, that he raped at least one of his slaves? Should we throw him out, or should we say he's the, the author of the Declaration of Independence? And what do we do? How do we how do we manage that? How do we manage that issue? So, uh, here's where I come down on that. It's a difficult one for historians. First of all, when we are writing and talking about these individuals, we need to tell the whole story, warts and all. So whether you like them or not, whether you're a pro-Jefferson or, or anti-Jefferson, whether you're a Jefferson or a Hamilton guy, right? Uh, you've got to tell the full story, right? You've got to tell the full story and not, not deny. One of the things we do as historians is study human beings. And then the second thing we have to do, I think, is recognize uh, that many of the people who made the most important um, impacts and contributions to our society did horrible things and weigh those, and weigh those in the time that they were in. And I find Jefferson uh, endearing, despite the horror, because I think he struggled with this. He struggled to get through this. I don't find Andrew Jackson as endearing. I think Andrew Jackson found a certain pleasure in killing Indians. Um, I don't think Franklin Roosevelt um, enjoyed many of the compromises he had to make, but he had to make them. And that's the reality of leadership. But it also means when we look back on these figures, we need to learn from the dark spots, from the bad things they did as well as the good things they did. And that should perhaps lead us to question whether we should valorize them. So then we get to the story of statues, right? And naming things. So I'll take another example, right, that's been in the news, Woodrow Wilson. You know what, Woodrow Wilson did a lot of extraordinary things as president, he did a lot of horrible things too. He resegregated the civil service. He was opposed to women's right to vote. I think it might not be a good idea to, ha to name a public policy school after someone like that. I think it's important to study him and people can have different opinions on him and we can say he did some things well. The 14 points is a, is a beautiful declaration of international change. Uh, but on the other hand, his resegregation of the civil service, so he went back on what Theodore Roosevelt had done is horrible. And if we're telling people to a public policy school to inspire them in public service, that might not be the right name. So there's the historical evaluation of people, and then there's the valorization of people. And I'm fine with people not wanting to make Jefferson a hero if they don't want to. I think you need to study him. You can't understand the development of our country. I think the Declaration of Independence remains one of the most important philosophical statements of what I would call liberal values, inspired by John Locke and others. Uh, but he also captures how our liberal values have been fused to some of the most uh, violent racism of the last two to three hundred years. And that's actually a useful conversation, isn't it? And I'm actually less concerned whether you think he's great or not. I think we have to have that conversation. Right? I'd say the same thing about Bill Clinton. A lot of things he did as president that I think he's the last president to really manage the economy well and think about inequality, I believe. The last president to really think about that. But Bill Clinton also was responsible for some of the worst incarceration policies in our society. Uh, it started really with Reagan, but there are um, 
more minorities in our prison, particularly black men, than in any other society. We imprison more, uh, and that's uh, Bill Clinton contributed to that. How can you talk about him without discussing that? More, and then we'll open it up to the audience. Okay. Kayla W. Oh, here we are. Oh, you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm still asking. Okay. So, in the epilogue, you discuss the importance of creating a more informed electorate that can adequately make decisions. Would you agree with the idea that people should only be allowed to vote and run for office if they can prove that they have enough knowledge on how the government functions? Oh, right. We did talk about this, right? No. No, I don't think uh, it's a great question, Kayla. It's a question asked quite often, and it, it comes from, I think, a very uh, fair and important point of view, which is that we have too many people voting, uh, not just out of ignorance, voting uh, out of selfishness. And that's not necessarily new. Uh, and our electorate is no more ignorant than it's, than it's ever been. It's probably a little less ignorant, believe it or not, right? Um, but there's been a long-standing debate going back to John Adams about this, right? You've probably read about this in class. Who should be able to vote? Why should people be allowed to vote? And one of the reasons women were not allowed to vote in many cases was because people thought women were not intellectually capable. And so this becomes problematic when you try to set certain thresholds. I think there are two things that are essential to democratic theory and to our experience, and two things we have not honored. One, we should do everything we can, and I argue this at the end of the book, to make it possible for people to inform themselves to be better voters if they want to, and encourage them to do that. That is actually one of the reasons we have public education. And is one of the reasons we should fund education to make better citizens. You came to PolyPrep to be better citizens. You came to Stuyvesant to be better citizens, right? So citizenship, we should teach. And it's ironic to me that some people complain we don't have enough citizenship and then cut off all the funding uh, for that, right? And that's, by the way, why we should teach history. Where else are you gonna learn this stuff but in a history class, right? So the first thing we need to do is make it possible. And one of the reasons people have trouble identifying fact from fiction in our world today, it's not a new problem, right? Think of the yellow journalism of the late 19th century. This is not a new problem, right? But one of the problems today is people haven't been taught how to critically evaluate the information in front of them. There are a lot of people with fancy letters after their names who don't know how to do basic critical evaluation. I see this all the time. I get undergraduates at uh, UT, University of Texas, who are phenomenal. They have to be in the top 7% of their class in Texas to get in. You don't get in if you're not, if you're not in the top 7%. Um, some of them are phenomenal engineers, but they've never actually critically analyzed material put in front of them. right? They haven't been taught to do that. They haven't been taught to write, to think. So we need to invest in that, and we need to invest in institutions that encourage that. And that's what public radio does, right? Uh, we all believe in these institutions. It's why our planes don't fall out of the sky, right? It's not because American Airlines or United Airlines are good companies. We all know they're not, right? It's that the FAA and the National Transportation Safety Board work hard to provide objective maintenance standards and to enforce them. We can do this. We have underinvested in that, which is why we have more of a problem with that today. But second, we talked about this before, instead of creating a threshold for people to vote, we need to make it easier for people to vote. Uh, I told you my line before, I'm gonna use it here. There's, there is fraud in American elections. The fraud is that people are prevented from voting. There's no fraud in the voting, except for Vladimir Putin's interference. <laughs> but in terms of Americans, 
There's no fraud in the voting. It is statistically insignificant. It is more likely, far more likely, that you're cheating on your tests here than cheating on voting. Oh, statistically. Right, statistically. It is, there is the fraud in our elections, is how, and we have always done this, we have made it hard to vote. I had a piece in the Washington Post a couple months ago making this point, that actually if you compare our elections to other societies, other democracies, we're some of the least democratic elections in the world. If we want a fair representation of viewpoints, make it easier for people to vote. There are, it's not the 140 million who voted in the last election that matter, really. It's the 200 million others who didn't vote. And some of that is not because they were lazy, that's a myth because we make it hard for them to vote. You really think that someone from a minority background is comfortable going to a government registry office in West Texas right now, the register to vote? Do you think it's easy for my students who live in dorms and change their address every four or five months to actually register to vote to show a year's, ad, a year's residence in a particular place? Oh, and by the way, if they forget two weeks in advance, as most 18-year-olds do, everything, they can't vote, Right, is this a mistake? Oh, and why is it that there's so many polls open for elderly people in elderly homes and so few in young minority community areas, right? This, this is the issue, right? Make it easier for, get, for people to get information and make it easier for them to vote and we'd have a more representative and a smarter democracy. I'd like to open up the questions to our neighbors, the audience, some of whom are <coughs> parents. Um, and faculty, and some of whom I hope are favorite neighbors. Any questions from the audience? Yes, I've forgotten your first name, sorry. Uh, Oris. So I, um, I'm very... Stuyvesant student here, by the way. So. <laughs> um, I'm intrigued by the notion of uh, crisis control as a hindrance to the president and to, what he, to the leadership that he needs to be, needs to be like, performing. Um, do you think that it, this, uh, so the solution to this problem intrinsically results in expanding the bureaucracy so you have a better facility to, uh, to, to respond to crises so that the president doesn't have to? Well, to some extent, yes. So crisis management, this has been studied a lot. I'm drawing on the work here of political psychologists, people like Danny Kahneman and others. Uh, if you, I highly recommend, after you read my book, uh, Think, what it's thinking, thinking Fast and Slow by Dan Economy, which is a great book on some of these issues. Um, so here's what happens in crisis moments. Think of your own life, right? You feel the need to react quickly. So the first thing is you go back to what you think are your deepest beliefs. We actually become most idealistic in crisis moments. After 9-11, well, actually, none of the students can remember that, but those others who are not students in the, in the audience will remember, after 9-11, Americans felt more idealistic than ever before. Flags are waving, et cetera, right? You go back to your core beliefs, right, even if they're not necessarily applicable to that situation, and you look for people to do things for you fast. And so that's where you get an expansion of bureaucracy or an expansion of actors or what we might call irregular actors to do different things. And there's a tendency to turn to those who can solve your problem quickly rather than those who can help you think it through. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the single best explanation for why the United States has been in so many wars since World War II. Here is the historical fact you all know as students, right? Most of the wars we fought since World War II were wars we did not want to fight. That is why we haven't declared war. 
the American public didn't want to fight these wars. What's happened is we've gotten into wars, and the American public has not wanted to get out once we're in. That's different from wanting to go into the war, right? So the American public never would have voted for war in Korea on June 24, 1950. In fact, Truman had withdrawn forces for that reason. But once the North Koreans attacked and we reacted, then Americans wanted to see that war through. That's what happens in a crisis. You take on commitments quickly, and you empower certain actors, and then you find yourself acting to reinforce the decision you have made. This is the biggest mistake ambitious leaders make. It's the, I made the wrong decision, or I made the decision I didn't want to make, but instead of revisiting it, I'm going to make it good. Here's the dangerous moment in all of our lives. It probably hasn't happened to you yet here. Uh, you spend a lot of money on something, or you send people off to die because of a crisis. It's very hard to raise your hand and say, sorry, I made a mistake. It's much easier to say, we will not let them die in vain. We will send more to fight, or we will not waste our money. We will spend more to make this work. That's what's happened in every one of our conflicts. Korea, Vietnam, the Iraq War. Does anyone in this room think if W could do it again, he would not have gone into Iraq? Right? But he won't admit that. And he spent his entire presidency trying to salvage a war that was a mistake. I think even in his own eyes. Even in his own eyes, right? That's what happens with crisis management. You don't think things through and you find yourself defending a position you wouldn't have defended otherwise. The best thing you can do in a crisis is to stop, slow things down as much as you can, and think through before you act. Think through before you act. One more. Um, I, I was really interested by what you said about the presidency needing, to, you know, kind of being stuck in, like, prop, like you said, crisis management. But I was thinking about how you were talking about how leadership has to change, almost be like entrepreneurial, have a new definition of, of leadership. But how does that happen in the context of a four-year term in re-election as one problem and special interest groups uh, yep. as the other? I think you've identified, what, what's your first name? Karen. Karen. Karen's identified two of what I would say are the three biggest problems, right? Short-termism. I'm only here for a few years. Oh, I need to get reelected. So the, the day you're in office, you start running for reelection. My, my wife was just elected to the city council in Austin. And, uh, which, yeah, yeah. She's, and she's a four-year term. And as soon as she was elected to office, people kept coming to her and saying, well, if you do this for me, we'll help you with your reelection. And she's like, I'm not even sure I want to run for reelection. But the presumption was, not that you want to do the right thing, that you want to get reelected. And hopefully those are the same things, but if you're going to choose, right? So there's a short-termism. There's a second issue of special interest, people coming to you. And the best way to stay out of trouble is just to give a little bit to everyone. This is often how foreign aid works. We don't give enough foreign aid, but we often give it to the wrong people. Because basically the way it works is everyone who comes into the president's office or the governor's office, they say, okay, I'll try to give them a little bit so they get out of my office, right? It's parenting also, right? <laughs> Somehow my kids always get me to open my wallet, usually less than they ask for, but... Um, so that's the... And then the third issue is money in politics, right? Money's always been in American politics. It's always been a problem, the Rockefellers and McKinley, right? But it's gotten much worse, the scale of it, right now. One of the things that keeps my students from running is they don't have money. And someone else who's less qualified has money, so they run, which is ridiculous. Right? So these are, these are the challenges. These are huge 
huge challenges, right? But I'm optimistic because these are challenges that a new generation of leaders can work their way through, right? Those who go into office and decide it's not about getting reelected, and those who find new ways to raise money, and those who find new ways to bring coalitions of people together can get outside of this system. One of the reasons we have old people, the oldest Congress, second oldest ever, the only one oldest was the one before this. We had three 70-year-olds running for president, right? We were stuck in that system that you described. We can get out of that system with people who squeeze their way in and then decide they're gonna be committed to changing it from within. We've had this happen in our history. You know this history, right? The Lincoln generation is responsible for a barrage of amendments, 13th, 14th, and 15th. I'm not gonna test you on what they were, but I assume you know what they were. The Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson generation, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th amendments, including the women's right to vote. We can have another moment like that. I'm gonna close on a prediction. Within the next 10 years, the Electoral College will be reformed. Within the next 10 years, there'll be a constitutional amendment guaranteeing that any two human beings who love each other can marry one another. And in the next 10 years, there'll be a constitutional amendment limiting money in politics. And it's gonna be done by this generation going in. That's how, that's how this changes, I think. Thanks for listening, and thanks so much to all of our friends at PolyPrep. We'll be back soon with a new episode continuing our Congressional Contender series, where we sit down with all of the Democratic candidates taking a shot at New York City's sole Republican-controlled House seat, NY11, covering South Brooklyn and Staten Island. We've already spoke with Mike DeSillis and Michael DeVito, and Zach Emig is up next. Until then, stay free, Bay Ridge.